welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. I'd like to tell you the story, true story, of how the Lord brought a transsexual into my life and presented, the Lord presented this individual for baptism. Believe it or not, this was in North Idaho. Uh, by the way, I'm a missionary from North Idaho to California. Can anything good come out of Idaho? Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> I was pastoring at the at a church that was the largest city between Seattle and Minneapolis on Interstate 90 and uh, a place called Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And one day I got a phone call from an individual identified themselves as TJ, needed help, just gotten off of the freeway, a wayfaring traveler, and needed help, was completely out of money, no place to stay, and was begging for my mercies. And so, uh, you know, the thoughts that run through your mind when you get calls like that. Uh, but I said, sure, I'll, I'll help. Well, they said, I will be willing to give you something in exchange for the money to help uh, pay for my accommodations and my lodging. Well, that was kind of new. I'd never had that happen before, you know. Usually they just want a handout and give nothing in return. This person was willing to give collateral and turn out to be a power drill. And uh, I still have that power drill to this day. It works. Uh, it's a very good craftsman tool, and I've used it frequently. Uh, so help this person out and uh, in the ensuing days had many conversations with this individual, learned some of the things about her or his life as the details began to come out. And uh, this individual became bonded to me in friendship and, and said to me, anytime that you need help, let me know, Pastor. I'm going to help you. So I said, well, I got this Honda over here that's not working too well. It needs a tune-up. Could you help me with that? Oh, sure. I know all about mechanics. Be happy to work on your car. So he'd come over and work in my garage and get his uh, hands, uh, you know, greasy and fix up my car so that it was running. And then I had a pickup truck, and he'd sometimes work on the pickup truck and just really became uh, a good, uh, fast friend. And eventually, T.J. requested to be baptized at our church there in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, along with the rest of his family who eventually joined him. And not too long ago, I received a call from T.J., and he said that his mother had died, and would I please come and have the funeral? That's touching, isn't it? You know, the Lord 
has marvelous ways of working, doesn't he? Marvelous ways of... And if we're willing to use the talents, the gift of abounding grace that God has given to us, he can work wonderful miracles. I think of that hymn that says, Lord, lay some soul upon my heart and love that soul through me and help me now to do my part to win that soul to thee, Lord. Lord, lay some soul upon my heart. Ever since I was a young person, there have been things that I've wanted to do. I've wanted to uh, be able to be a good writer, to write good stories and essays. I thought about being a good businessman one time and actually took an accounting course and discovered that I couldn't balance the checkbook. I wanted to climb mountains, but the great ambition that I've had in my life is to win some soul for Christ. I mean to really win them, not just to get them to join the church, but to win them so that I can enjoy their company in heaven for eternity. And when I was a youth, how I wished I might know how to be a soul winner successfully. I still do. I still ask the Lord, how can I be a better soul winner? I think of Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 30. It says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. You know, it's a most wonderful work, winning souls. Let's suppose that I could play the organ like Mark over here or sing like an operatic baritone. What really good would that do me? Or maybe be a champion wrestler or a baseball player or climb Mount Everest or even get to be the president. Anything that I would do to build up myself, to seek applause from men, to enjoy the limelight, Really, it's only temporary, isn't it? And is really meaningless. And I know someone now who is in the limelight and was a singer and a dancer and popular, but now she is very wretched and has never won a soul and never saved anyone else, and she has no such memories to brighten her darkness. My friend, you and I want to enjoy life to the fullest, do we not? We want to enjoy it to the fullest now and later on to have the assurance that in the kingdom to come, there will be people there who will take us by the hand and thank us for leading them to salvation. Daniel 12, verse 1, if you'll look at that with me, tells of a great time of trouble. There shall be a time of trouble, it says, such as never was since there was a nation even to that same time. Now, that time of trouble will follow the greatest time of peace and prosperity that this world has ever known. Do you recognize our times? And Satan deliberately foments materialistic luxury so that people will forget about what is coming down the road. Now, during this time of prosperity and luxury and ease and pleasure, some people turned away from the bright lights and the dances and the entertainment and the lazy luxury of idleness. They turned away from that to work for winning souls. Because it says in verse 3 of Daniel 12, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, 
and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. Have you ever been downtown on a clear, starry night and you looked up through the smudgy glow of the street lights and then peered beyond to the clear, sparkling beauty of the stars? I don't think this text is speaking only of great evangelists who turn many to righteousness or any of the preachers who get paid a salary for full-time preaching and baptizing people. Soul winning is a wonderful work, yes, and I think it refers mostly to people who aren't paid a salary but who still are wise enough to win souls. He that winneth souls is wise. Who has courage to refuse the temptations to bury themselves in money-making or pleasure-seeking who find recreation and, yes, fun, and may I put it, in turning others to Christ? Christ taught a parable I'd like for you to look at. If you have the courage, do you have the courage to look at this parable? In Luke 16 and verse 1, because it might prick you pretty sharp if you look at it. So don't look at this unless you're prepared to get pricked, okay? Here's what it says in Luke 16 and verse 1. There was a certain rich man which had our steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. So I asked the question first off, who is accused here? Who is accusing here? You know, that that pricks pretty hard, doesn't it, when someone is accusing? And you think about the years that you have wasted. Think of the years that I've wasted. And then who accuses us for wasting it? Well, I tell you who the accuser is. You know who the accuser is, don't you? Satan. He says, look at, all of the, look at all of the good things that God has given you, all of the years that he's given you, and look at how you've wasted them. And he accuses you, doesn't he? The accuser of our brethren is cast down who accused them before our God day and night. He's the, the accuser. Satan, of course. He says, you've been living for yourself on this life that God gives you for many years. And the troubling thing about it is that <laughs> these accusations are true, aren't they? They're true. We've all had years. We've all had talents. We've all had opportunities that we've wasted, and the devil accuses us. How many souls have we won with the years that God has given to us? And you and I are being accused just like this steward was. Now let's find out what this man did because it might help us. Do you see what I told you about this parable? It pricks us right to begin with, doesn't it? But there's some hope because let's see what this man does. So there comes a time when we are caught at last and we face the emptiness of our lives and the uselessness of our being and the realization that if we went into the grave suddenly, there would be precious little anyone could honestly write on our tombstone except the date of our birth and death and the words, 
Lord, have mercy. And like a dentist who is drilling a tooth, Christ here is touching a raw nerve in this parable. Unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The grace of God is given to us in Christ. He is the brightness of the Father's glory. And the grace which God bestows is given to the riches of his glory. And this grace is given not to a few, but it's given to all. And what have we done with this gift? The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, it says in Titus 2.11. What have we done with this gift? But Christ is our life, it says in Colossians 3.4. He's not the life of a few only, but of all, for he is the life. And there is no other life. And in him was life And all the life was the light of men. And what have we done with this life? The gift by grace is the gift of life in Christ. In Christ, the life is given to every person. And his life is the manifestation of the manifold grace of God, of which we are appointed stewards. Life, therefore, constitutes the goods, the talents, which the householder has committed to our charge. Look at verse 2 in this parable. It says, They called him, and he said unto him, Now this is our unjust, unfaithful steward. He calls a debtor, and he says to him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship. For thou mayest be no longer steward. Uh, Pardon me. Uh, My my comment of introduction to that verse was incorrect. This is the Lord who calls this steward to account. He says, what is this that I hear that you've been misusing my wealth? You're fired. You're fired. You've had it. Kind of a strange story, isn't it? And it appears as though Christ is teaching next for us to be clever rogues. In verse 3, the manager is faced with three choices either to labor, beg, or starve to death. Perhaps his health wouldn't permit him to dig and labor, or he won't labor and dig ditches because of his pride. It's interesting that he has nothing for his future. He has been systematically robbing his boss, but now he's spent everything and it went through his hands, and foolishly, this old man has nothing. And he's too old or sick to work or else he's too proud to work, and he can't beg. It's too degrading for one who is in his position of life. And for him to contemplate uh, the manager of the, the estate sitting by the roadside with a tin cup begging, that's impossible in his mind. And so he comes up with a clever idea. He still has the combination to the safe. And he wants to figure out a way now to use his master's goods in a way to secure for himself a future for his future wants so that when the master does finally throw him out for good, he will have somewhere to go where he can eat and sleep without begging. And so he began to use the master's goods not to gather for himself, but to impart to others to win and influence friends now. That's what he needs, friends now. And so in verses 4 through 7, 
Maybe he gives a sly wink to his master's debtor and he says, I'm paying 50% off of your bill to help you out. I've got authority and I'm rich. And so what we find him doing here is he is systematically embezzling his boss's wealth even more. But now he is building himself a house in the hearts of these people. And by and by, the boss got around to really firing him. And as the manager walked away, he was tempted to feel dejected. He decided to go to the house of the man who owed a hundred measures of oil, but who he had been, who had been forgiven fifty. He goes to the house where he's forgiven half the debt. He's made a friend there. And he says, you know what? After all my years of faithful service, the cruel boss fired me and I've got no pension. I've got no house. I've got no bank account. And all I ever had, I spent to help others. And here I am. And the former debtor says, don't, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. You stay right here with us. We like you a lot. And as long as we've got food, you've got food. And we'll share half with you, just like you shared half with us. Welcome to our home. What a clever fellow. So he lived among the people, always received in one house after another. You know, this is quite a tale, isn't it? Uh, Christ's Object Lessons tells us that Jesus was actually telling an actual incident that had occurred in the day that he was telling it. And so this really hit home that one of the publicans had actually done this. Now in verse 10, the Lord commended the unjust steward for his cleverness. I like that boss, don't you? I like that boss. Most unusual boss. Most bosses and landowners, when they hear her of a deal like this, would go into a rage and they would call the police This one, when he hears of it, said, well, this guy is a rogue, all right, but he is surely a clever one. Surely a clever one. You got to give him credit for that. He knew how to use his head. And if I can't commend his honesty, I can certainly at least commend his skillful wisdom. And that is worth remarking about. Well, now you think about it. And it doesn't seem at all bad that the Lord should commend him so. First, consider this steward's plight. He was going to get fired and nothing he could do would prevent it now. Too late. Second, he was hopeless. It was hopeless for him to try to pay back his debts to the boss at this late hour. And he had even been embezzling for years, probably. And he was an old man now. And if he paid him back at the rate of $1 million a month, he'd die long before he could finish the debt. So that was useless. And it makes me think of our debt that we owe to God. How useless it is to say to God, isn't it? Oh, Lord, I'm going to be good from now on out. Just let me pay you back and all that I owe. I'll do this and I'll do that for you. Just give me another chance. And the answer is no. Third, there is something else to the story that may not be clear to us at first. This rich man was mightily rich. He was no ordinary rich man. The steward couldn't hurt him anymore now by 
disturbing the rest of his master's goods to the poor like he did, distributing them like he did. He may not have known that. He may have known. But the rich man surely did know it. And that's why he wasn't angry when he heard what the unjust steward had done. He ruined me anyway, I can hear the rich man saying. Why get peeved just because he's given what little else was in the safe to the poor people so that he could make a home for himself when I fire him? Pretty clever, that guy. With a head like that on him, he would certainly make a good governor or politician of some sort. Actually, I'm sure by now that you have recognized who this rich man is, haven't you? It represents Jesus Christ. He is rich. He's fabulously rich. His blood, his sacrifice on the cross, you and I have made him poor. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says so. For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. So Jesus is both poor and rich. He's so poor that nothing that you and I could give him would do him any good anyhow. And he's so rich that nothing we could give him would enrich him any further. And so he's perfectly happy now for us to use all that we have left of his goods that he's put into our hands in order to benefit other people. His blood has already been shed. His fortune has already been spent. And if we have sense enough to do it from now on, the good Lord will commend us just like he did that unjust steward. He might offer us a seat by his side on his throne as he has promised in Revelation 3 verse 21 for our wisdom in doing what we can do even in this late hour. And so here is his wise advice in verse 9. To us, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you fall, fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Why, that really strikes hard, home hard, doesn't it? Jesus suddenly changes the whole picture here of the judgment for us. Follow me just a moment. You know, here I've thought all along that the judgment was a time in which I'm standing before God the Father and there is Satan there at the right side accusing me terribly. Look at all the wasted years and he's done nothing with it. This is the accuser of the brethren and we say nothing and we just hang our heads there because our number is up and then Christ steps up and he says, don't worry I'll cover all of his sins, let him into heaven. And the father says, okay, let him in. But now in this parable, Jesus changes the picture radically. When you fail, 
you're going to get fired according to this illustration. Just like this unjust steward. And that's true in a certain sense. All of the works that we have been depending on will fail us in the judgment. And there's precious little any of us have done directly for Christ. I've done nothing for him. I know that. What about you? Are there any hands here this morning? Has anyone enriched Jesus? No. And so here we stand before him, fired, condemned, and Satan about to carry us off triumphantly. I say that has been my picture of the judgment when I stand there. And then suddenly, suddenly all sorts of these people start pleading for us. You can't let this man, you can't let this woman go. He's my friend. He did this. He did that for me. I want to take him home with me. And someone else says, yes, he showed me the way to eternal life. And another says, when I was discouraged and about to give up, he helped me. He gave me no hope. And I vote for him to be saved. And someone else might even say, you can't let Satan take her. She baked me a loaf of bread. And she baked me a pie. And she brought it over to me. And she helped me make a dress. And she comforted me when I was crying on my way home from school. And she helped me with my arithmetic homework when I wasn't even her daughter. Make yourselves friends. Sounds frankly like selfish service, doesn't it? But it makes a lot of sense. It's helped me a lot. I used to think that when I got into difficulty in the judgment that the angels would help me out by saying, I saw him praying. I saw him reading his Bible. I saw him reading the spirit of prophecy. And he kept his eyes closed all during prayer. But when he was tempted to kick Billy, he didn't do it. You know, I was rather depending on the angels to bail me out like that. And now I see that what they say won't matter much. It's what friends I've been able to make of the mammon of unrighteousness. And they are not the angels. Now we need to be clear here and clear up one misunderstanding. Christ is not talking about the common, ordinary, run-of-the-mill friends like we go fishing with and play tennis with and study with and work with in the office, etc. You may have thousands of such friends and still be in real trouble in the judgment day. You see, the whole point of Christ's advice is that they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Do you get the point? The only friends who can help you in the judgment day are those whom you have saved. And shown the way to eternal life. Who can say that they are there because of what you have done for them. And you may have 10,000 friends. But if they will at all be lost in the judgment day, they won't help you. I told you before that we started that there would be a sharp prick in this parable today. But don't be discouraged. As you go home today, 
I want you to be hopeful and be encouraged because your judgment day has not yet come. And that's something to be very glad about. You still have the opportunity to make for yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. And note it does not say make to yourselves friends with the mammon of unrighteousness. Of is the correct word here or out of. And of course it means using wisely all of the talents that God has given to us because our offerings and our tithes do go to help bring Jesus to souls and bring them into the kingdom of God. But it means more than that. He says, in effect, make to yourselves friends by capitalizing on the methods of the unjust steward that when you fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. And though it may appear to you to be selfish, use every resource that is available to you, your money, your time, your talents, your words, your influence, your affections in order to win souls. And then when you are fired and when life is at its end and when you face your judgment, your friends whom you have won to everlasting life will welcome you into the new Jerusalem. And if you don't have a mansion there yourself, you'll at least be welcome in their mansion. And if they welcome you, you can be sure that the Lord, the rich man of the parable, will commend you heartily. So much so that he will welcome you too. May God bless you. Join us again next time for the word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.